0: Hi there, and welcome to another DishCast. I'm still in Provincetown because I can't leave because it's so beautiful. And the autumn here is sublime. And I just want to thank you all for your continued listening, give you a little heads up about what's coming. Spencer Claven, this rather young, interesting reactionary, has uh, written a book called How to Save the West. We get into it. Matthew Crawford, the author of Shop class as Soulcraft, another really interesting character is coming on. David Brooks, who doesn't need any real introduction, Pamela Paul is coming on too to talk books, wokeness, all the rest of it. But today, we're returning to a topic the dish is sort of engaged with periodically, which I'm trying to figure out a way to engage more rigorously. And that is the welfare, rights, dignity, of animals. And it's a huge topic. And it's one that's always kind of puzzled me and prompted huge amounts of guilt in me into how I am complicit in some way in, and we all are to some extent, in the suffering of so many of what I believe are God's creatures. And anyway, so it was it was really I was really excited to see that one of my favorite writers and philosophers has Really, gone to town on this. Martha Nussbaum is a philosopher and legal thinker. She's taught at Harvard, Brown, Oxford, all those small O places, and is currently the Ernst Freund Freud Distinguished Service Professor of Law and Ethics at the University of Chicago, appointed in the philosophy department and the law school. Her many books include The Fragility of Goodness, Sex and Social Justice creating capabilities, and from disgust to humanity, sexual orientation, and constitutional law. And I was happy, proud to publish Martha back in the days when I was editing The Republic, and we were in the vanguard of expanding rights and dignity for gay people. Anyway, but this book, which we're going to discuss today, is called Justice for Animals, Our Collective Responsibility. Martha, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Well, Andrew, it's great to see you again and hear you, and and it's wonderful to be on the program.
0: I'm going to start the way we always do, because I think it sometimes helps to give a sense of who you are, actually. Where where were you born, and where did you grow up, and how did you become interested in philosophy?
1: Well, I was actually born in New York City, but I grew up mostly in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. And, you know, that's more or less what I rebelled against. I, I was very privileged, snooty, exclusionary upbringing where, you know, Jews couldn't live in my neighborhood. I later converted to Judaism. And of course, you couldn't even talk about sexual orientation. And it was later when I became a professional actress for a brief time I, that I met a large variety of people and I became very invested in the culture. a whole of- minute.
0: You became a professional actress?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, tell, left... tell me
0: where and when. How, what did work?
1: So, well, while I was still a student at Wellesley College, I did two summers of summer Suck, One at the Provincetown Playhouse, actually. No, really. One at the Yarmouth Playhouse, so both on the Cape. But then I left Wellesley to take a job acting in a repertory company that had been founded to present Greek drama in a big splash way in the Ypsilanti, Michigan. It was the yes. Ypsilanti Greek. Theatre and Judith Anderson played Clytemnestra, Bert Lahr played the lead in Aristophanes Birds, so I was a nineteen-year-old you know chorus member, but of course, in the Greek plays, the chorus is really important and i and it was directed by the director of the Greek National Theatre at the peteros and then after that, I went to acting school at n y u But then I realized that that wasn't really the life for me; it was a way of expanding my emotions and my life. But it was just not a career and what I really wanted to do was to think and write about the plays. So I went back to regular school at NYU and then went on to graduate school at Harvard. And you know, then I was going on, I, I guess I was in the classics department to think and write about the Greek tragedies, but I was already thinking philosophically, only I didn't really call it that. And then the people at Harvard were just not interested in the ideas of Greek tragedy. So I switched over. The philosophy program. I still got my PhD in classics because I wanted my language skills to be tested at the highest level. But I, you know, never looked back, and it was really philosophy that I wanted to do.
0: So Latin and Greek. Once again, were your, were yeah. your. Were, I, I, I'm just to share this because I was passionate about both those, both those places. Although I never, no, I say both, passionate about Latin. And my greatest regret is not doing classical Greek in school because I, you know, because there's no substitute to reading the originals in so many cases and so many amazing works are in that language. Uh, and,
1: you know, I got passionate about Latin later. Greek was kind of my first. But now I, I'm within our department, which is very strong in ancient Greek and Roman philosophy. I'm the Roman because others are focused on Greek and I focus on Hellenistic. Period where, where, of course, the Roman texts—Seneca, Cicero, and Marcus Aurelius, etc.—are well. Marcus writes in Greek, but the others are all writing in Latin. So I'm really very passionate about Latin as well.
0: Tell me, how did your interest in this topic begin to arise?
1: Well, very slowly, I guess. All along, I had thought about these issues, and I had gradually shifted my diet. I gave up red meat first, and now I've given up all meat except for occasional fish, as I describe in the book, and we can talk about that later for reasons that have to do with my philosophical view on what the harm of death is. But in any case, it was really my daughter. My daughter was a lawyer before she died in 2019, a lawyer for animal rights, and she was a big and deep thinker about how you could protect animals' welfare and animal rights. And she kept bringing to me all these amazing instances, particularly wild animals, because she was working in the wildlife division of an NGO. And I learned from her. And we wrote several co-authored papers for the Human Development and Capability Association, where she would supply the animal law and I would supply the capabilities approach. And really, the book grew out of that collaboration. And of course, when she, she died in 2019, it was a a lengthy illness which was topped off by a fungal infection after successful transplant surgery. I was devastated, but I also had a mission. And it I guess I got through that terrible tragedy by, by thinking, well, I can't keep her alive, but I can keep these causes alive that she cared about so much. And by this time, they were my causes as well. And so I got to work and I, she knew about the book. She wanted me to do it. So I made the book as good as it could be, and I keep working on the issues now. I've just written something for the New York Review of Books about whales, so I'm still in it.
0: What was it about your daughter that, that attracted her to the defense of, of wild animals, even?
1: Well, I think she particularly loved whales. She always felt a very deep bond with especially orcas that she saw in the San Juan Islands, she asked us to scatter her ashes in the place in the San Juan Islands where orcas roam. I think what she loved about them was their their beauty, their complexity, their capacity for social learning and for group interaction. They have a wonderful society which is matriarchal. I think one of the things she loved especially was that it's the only species other than human where postmenopausal females have a big role to play in the society. Because orcas have to be pregnant for 22 to 24 months. And when they're pregnant, they can't really take a leading role in educating the young because it's very demanding to give birth to a 400-pound baby. So it's really the post-menopausal females who are the chief educators. And she, she was just going into menopause herself. And she just thought that was me. And so she, just, she and her husband went out and did a lot of trips, saw a lot of orcas, not just there, but in other parts of the world. And uh, so, you know, that led to an interest in how international law and domestic law could do more to protect these amazing lives.
0: Yeah, I'm sitting here, obviously, in, in, in one of the oldest whaling towns in America. And, you know, in 100 years, we've gone from seeing the beaches of this town filled with caucuses of whales that, that, that at one point... Provincetown was one of the wealthiest zip codes. They didn't have zip codes, localities in America, because whale oil was incredibly valuable at the late late nineteenth right. century. And yet now we have conservation efforts. We have constant whale watching trips. We have people going out there. And and if you've, I mean, I've been out there a few times to observe the whales, and there is just something irreplaceable about being near them. You just get a sense of awe. To be honest,
1: right. And that's how I begin in the book. I think wonder and awe are emotions that are really valuable to draw us toward these alien lives and make us see them as valuable. So once we have that, then we can also see that what's happening to them is terrible. And we can be moved to compassion and ultimately to corrective action. And, you know, what's happening now with whales is another thing, which is that their products are actually no longer useful. So I don't think we get all the credit. It's just a kind of chance that the greed motive is not very active these days. Whale oil has been replaced by other things. No one really wants to eat whale meat. And even in the coronation of King Charles the Surge, he was anointed with olive oil from his family, olive orchards. And I think that was deliberate. I mean, he is a, an animal rights and environmental activist, but you know, no one put up a fuss because I think they, they now think, we should protect whales. Well, that's great.
0: Well, in the past, and um, actually today also, one of the distinctions that people make about the difference between humans and animals, you have various theories as to why we're different, why we're special. One of them is intel- One of them is religious, obviously, which we, we're not going to debate because it's a matter of faith, that, that humans, but, but even Christians and, and, and people who are uh, faithful Christians believe that God also made the animals on earth. Yeah. And in fact, at this point, my own church, Catholic Church, is among the, the strongest defenders of environmental policy. Pope Francis has been extraordinary on this. How do you defend the rights of animals? You don't call it rights. You don't call them—you you actually just use this. Let me start with this. Justice. Yes. Now, justice. E- e- most people would think that's for people. It's not for animals. Justice is about a political regime in which things can be just or unjust. How does that apply to peregrine falcons, whales, and and maybe amoebas?
1: Well, okay, so justice, I I do ultimately get to rights, but I start with the idea of justice. What is the intuitive idea of injustice? As Aristotle says, the gods don't have a need for justice because they have whatever they want. They don't have any bad efforts to try to get it. And I think our picture intuitively of injustice is you see something you want, you're trying to get it, and then you're blocked by something that is either negligent or willfully bad. And that happens to animals too. And uh, so for me, any animal that is sentient, that can, in other words, respond to the world, seeing something it wants and wanting to get it, any animal who has an internal vantage point on the world can be a subject of justice or injustice.
0: Let's, 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 Let's say a fish that is swimming around and sees a predator or senses a predator and goes in the opposite direction, is that a similar thought to someone walking down a street, seeing someone with a gun and walking to the other side of the street? Or is it, is it a different experience? I mean, it strikes me that some of this is what we might call instinct that doesn't quite rise to the level of intelligence or of, an, of the kind of autonomous person that we would think of in, in human terms. Tell me how you distinguish, where this fits in.
1: Okay, so what scientists have done is to distinguish what they and I call sentience. That is, roughly speaking, there's someone at home inside, there's a real person inside perceiving and feeling from other kinds of more rote-based interactions. Now, all animals have evolutionary mechanisms that cause them to avoid danger, but they need, in addition for sentience to be there. They need it to be subjectively felt. And so the way scientists proceed is to do various experiments that would come out differently if the creature subjectively feels pain or if it doesn't. And there have been, well, we pretty much grant that all mammals are sentient in that way and birds, the case has long ago been one. But with fish, there was a real controversy. So there's a, a wonderful book by Victoria Bracewaite called Do Fish Feel Pain? where she describes the very carefully designed experiments which show that the fish behave in a way that shows that they feel the pain. They don't just react auto- automatically. Tell no, me,
0: without- give, me, give me an example of that an experiment that could show that because I think it's in, the, in, in this, reading these experiments that I was like, Oh, it was the actual process of the experiment that I found fascinating. Can you map that oh, out? Because I, I find it hard to think of a fish, a fish as having feelings or subjective view of the world. It's just intuitively exactly. difficult for me.
1: They have perhaps a much simpler sense and I do think that's important. They don't have a sense of their own projects as evolving over time. But what she did was to give a, a painful stimulus, which is allowed in the lab because it's uh, just a weak pain. It's acetic acid. And then she watched what they did. Now, one thing she did was to set up in the research environment obstacles. And if they tried to avoid the obstacle, but they didn't do it when they were anesthetized and therefore the pain stimulus was taken away, then that showed that it was the pain stimulus that made the difference. So, So there's lots of different variants of that but but that, to cut to the chase, the fact that we can actually give fish anesthesia so they don't feel pain, then we can see what the difference in behavior is between one and the other. So
0: you notice that they've, oh, they've just felt a pain. Personally, they've subjectively yeah. felt that pain and they are reacting yeah. to it. And okay. that is is your core to the definition of what you call sentience.
1: Now, I say fish, but that means bony fish, actually sharks and the cartilaginous fish It's much less clear that the jury is still out on that because they do things that are very hard to swear with a subjective feeling of pain. For example, they cannibalize (laughs) parts of their own bodies. So if their fin is wounded, they bite it off and, and, and they show no sign of distress in doing that. So there's still a lot of uncertainty and people are on both sides of that question. With crustaceans, most people think that there's no subjective feeling of pain. With insects, well, there's doubt about bees, but most other insects, they pretty well think they don't. Now, of course, insects still avoid danger, but that is pretty much automatic. So anyway, this is the kind of...
0: So it's a distinction between automatic responses to things that are probably evolutionarily driven and mm-hmm. a subjective experience of a singular moment of pain, which yeah. prompts an obvious response that you can have a control group of anesthetized fish to determine that that is actually so. This sense that oh, I've just had pain inflicted upon me is 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 part of the. But however, you've tried to move away just from simply understanding the role of animals in terms of whether they suffer pain or not. That that you 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 we used to think the key thing is to prevent cruelty and let's not inflict pain. But you you you've taken a slightly different perspective with respect to animals and what you've called a a capabilities. What's the A? What's the A again? The capabilities? Capabilities approach. Capabilities approach, which is taking the view, taking a view of the entire animal and seeing how its life is lived, how it goes around developing the projects of its life and whether it is prevented in fully flourishing as an animal. That's my brief summary of what you'd be. Can you unpack that for me? Tell me how that would matter in the case of, for example, examples
1: of a few animals. Okay. First thing is to say this approach was developed jointly by me and Marcia Sen, the economist, who won the Nobel Prize in 1998. And what we were trying to do was have an intervention in the world of human development economics, where progress of a nation was measured by gross domestic product per capita. And we were saying that doesn't give a very good measure of how on the ground, people are actually faring in getting the things that they value and they want. So we introduce this approach to say what matters is what people are actually able to do and to be in areas that they value in their lives. And so capabilities doesn't mean internal skills. It means substantive opportunities for choice in areas that that matter to people. Now, I went further and I turned that into a theory of justice. But in any case, that's where it comes from. Now, in the case of animals, you know, just the same thing is true. Animals are trying to do things that they value and then they get interfered with and stopped. And and so that, as I say, is the, the intuitive notion of injustice. And so what I've done is to simply develop the same approach in a way that's pertinent to animal lives using, and of course, in this case, you can't ask people what they want. You have to look and study the animal. They say what they want by what they do, but you have to rely on people who are very careful watchers, who have lived with a given type of animal for many years, and who can be relied on to say, these are the things that matter in that animal life. Now, why is this different from the focus on pain? Well, you know, I'm a great admirer of both Jeremy Bentham in the 18th century and Peter Singer now. And I think that to focus on pain is, of course, crucial. That matters greatly, but it's not the only thing that matters. Some humane zoos may not actually inflict pain. And if the animal is born in the zoo, they don't even know that they can't walk 200 miles, which an average elephant does in the course of a day. A day? You know? No. Yeah, a day, a day.
0: No, yeah. 200 yes. miles in a day? Come on.
1: Well, they're very strong and very big, yes. Wow. But, uh, but, you know, they also have groupings. I mean, our society is, you know, fairly flexible, but you could perhaps live with a, a handful of people if you feel the need to. But if you're a dolphin, you need a pod, you need a large group to socialize with, and the functions are distributed within the group. Elephants need a matriarchal group. Oh, I said bare minimum of four adult females, but usually quite a few more. And then the males come and go and join up with a group at certain times, but the young cannot be raised without a matriarchal group. So anyway, that's the sort of thing that a person who's using this capabilities approach would need to know, and they would say, well, you know, this zoo is doing okay for pain, but it's just not giving the elephant an opportunity to live its own life. And I think by now, actually, most people have concluded that zoos should not include elephants even the bigger ones like San Diego, where they can wander around quite a bit. Um, And, you know, whales should not be kept in marine theme parks for a similar reason. They can't have their community around. And this uh, film Blackfish, where Tilikum, the orca who was kidnapped from his group and then put in SeaWorld in San Diego, he killed his trainer. But that horrible incident was the culmination of a life in which he was never allowed to become an orca it was sort of like the wild child on the hills. You know, He had just not been in a group that would teach him how orcas actually behave. So these are things we should not do. I think there are some animals who can certainly be kept in a zoo, many, many fish, many, many birds, but it has to be a zoo of the sort that allows the creature to live its own life. Parrots are pretty much loners. So I think then they can even be kept In a laboratory. And there are some remarkable cases of that where they just kind of live in the laboratory and they like the trainers and so forth. But anyway, each animal is different. So we have to know about each one. We have to have a sense of the whole form of life. And then we have to ask the question does this animal have the opportunity to live its characteristic form of life? Now, of course, an individual animal might always decide doesn't want to live that characteristic form of life. There are dolphins who prefer to hang around the coast and socialize with humans. They don't want to join the larger pod, but it's a set of opportunities that they should all have, and then they use them because they want.
0: So this is not about saying we are going to grade animals according to their intelligence levels and privilege those with greater intelligence because they're the ones most like us, and therefore we have a better understanding of how they might experience pain or suffering or or a, or an infringement on their capabilities in life. You're not doing that. You're you're actually getting rid of the scale then what you call the scala mm-hmm. naturae, which is which is in order to go go at things from a sort of from an animal eye view level. And like, what is what is what is a worm? How does a worm, an earthworm, think of its mm-hmm. life? How could you? like an earth. Let's take an earthworm because when I'm gardening and I chop one in two. <laughs> I'd rather not chop one in two. I'd rather not do that. But I understand that's a little different than if I cut my dog in two. You know, that they were, because I have to understand what that earthworm is about, what it, how it lives, what it, what it wants to do.
1: Okay. Well, first, the first thing is that this I want to put in a plea for Aristotle because everyone who hears the word scala naturae, if you look it up on Google, you will find it's imputed to Aristotle. But actually, Aristotle did not have that idea. And I've just written a new paper on that topic. I, my first dissertation, my doctoral dissertation, was on Aristotle's little treatise on the motion of the animals. Wow. And here he advances a common, what he calls a common explanation for the way that all animals move towards the things they want using forms of perception and forms of desire. He does not have a hierarchy. He just recognizes that there are many differences in the way that perception and desire are realized in different creatures. And I think, frankly, if you're religious, you may want the hierarchy because you might want to say, oh, this one is closer to God. I, don't, I think a lot of religious people don't like that way of thinking about God and do think that God cares for all creatures. But some religious people think that that's an important way of thinking about God, that we're closest to God You know, it really doesn't make sense because actually if you think about the different ways that we differ from different kinds of animals, you could make a thousand different scales. If you think in terms of spatial perception, we do pretty badly. Birds do much better. They can navigate all over the world because they have a sense we don't have at all. That is the sensory ability to perceive magnetic fields. If you think about how underwater creatures move around, they navigate by another sense that we don't have, which is a kind of sonar. They're able to perceive objects in their way, and they perceive what's inside the object that they're approaching, not just the surface of the object. There was an amazing case that a dolphin who was in a in a theme park, which I don't approve of, but anyway, she had learned from her trainer a signal for pregnancy because dolphins, of course, become pregnant in the theme park. And then she made that signal to her trainer and the trainer thought, Oh, her learning has gone astray. But then it turned out that the trainer was actually pregnant. She hadn't taken the test yet, but the dolphin perceived what was in something strange was inside. And so, you know, on all those fronts, better than we are, the surprising differences in all the senses, hearing. I mean, of course we hear within a narrow range of frequencies. Many animals, dogs, hear higher frequencies. Elephants make sounds that we can't even hear because they're so low. And smell, of course, we're we're very bad on. So we just have to look at each different thing and look at the different behaviors of animals. A lot of them have extremely sophisticated types of community and caring, even show a sense of equality. They even cheetahs divide the prey into equal shares. So, you know, they're just amazing things. Why don't we just study each form of life which evolved to fit its own environmental niche rather than saying which one is better? Well, it's, it's just not better. Did
0: well, maybe say- not better, but there, is, there has to be a distinction. We're going to try and find, we're going to find a line between sentience and non-sentience. And yeah. obviously knew- obviously mammals, you, you, you think all mammals have sentience in the sense, but there must be some... Creatures in the sea, like take an anemone or, or, a, or what Aristotle would call a sort of a stationary right. uh, animal, as it were. Uh, they don't move at all. They respond yeah. to stimuli, but they don't really move much at all. But, and then on the other extreme, you have something like an octopus, which looks like, I mean, it feels like a complete alien. I mean, its brain is distributed throughout its body. I mean, it's almost like a different than any other animal on Earth. And yeah, extraordinarily intelligent, right?
1: Right. For a long time, we thought intelligence required a neocortex because we thought all intelligence has to be like... Well, this natural. is a
0: crucial point. This is a crucial point, right? It's
1: a crucial point. And therefore, we thought birds aren't intelligent. But it turned out, of course, that they have a diffuse nervous system that comes up by a different evolutionary path, converges to the same abilities. And the octopus is similar, yes. So there are many, many ways that intelligence is physiologically realized. But you have to have a physiological basis. You have to be able to point to something in which the neural abilities reside. And so for all the hand-waving about the intelligence of plants, I just think that's hand-waving because the plants do not have an internal mechanism that can even hypothetically be said to be the seat of sentience. Where so we, when yeah.
0: i see my when i see my flowers leaning towards the place which has the most light in the garden in the in a 24-hour period you they are not moving i mean i've seen some you can see some time-lapse ones where they they're obviously moving no. as as if to seek well they are seeking but seeking is would require seeking the, the whole idea of seeking would require some sort of sentience right and you don't you don't think of think that with plants.
1: I, I don't think that with plants. And then there are lots of insects who, again, appear to seek and they move automatically. But there's no possibility of sentience. So for sentience, you have to have some hypothetical physiological basis. And then you have to have what science philosophers call convergence to the best explanation. You look at the behavior and you say, can we explain this behavior only by imputing sentience? So that's what those experiments were fish are doing. And so far, we haven't found such experiments with insects or even with your earthworm. So, you know, it's just a matter of trial and error. And scientists keep working on this. But I think but the line
0: I... is not intelligence or non-intelligence as understood right. through a human understanding of intelligence. The line is sentience or non-sentience based upon very different capacities that different animals have in navigating yeah. the world.
1: I, I do think we need that line. I mean, I'm not the only person working on this. There are people who would take me up on this, even within my own group in the Human Development and Capability Association. And we now have a big project funded by the Balsan Foundation, where we've got a group of younger scholars challenging our views. So we'll see, you know, if anyone manages to convince the audience that plants are sentient, okay, let them try to do that. But right now I just don't see it. And I do think that is an important line. But above that, I think what we get is amazing difference and variety. And yeah, I mean, sure, the ability to think in terms of right and wrong is very important. But I don't think we're the only creature who has that. And of course, people say, oh, well, chimps do it only within their own group. Well, guess what? Humans are pretty much like chimps in that respect. They haven't done much to think about other species. And, you know, we are pretty bad at our own use of our moral abilities. So well, that's still people- not
0: many, right? It's humans and chimps? Um- no,
1: like I mentioned cheetahs before. There are many, many animals who behave in ways that are helpful and beneficent toward their entire group. And so we could go through many of them. I just mentioned chimps because it seems like we are evolutionarily linked to chimps, but you know, that's an important ability. But first of all, humans use it very badly. I can't point to any animal that systematically makes war on its own species. I mean, chimps have aggressive behaviors and there's a strife for supremacy and so on, but we don't have massive armed warfare. So, we do pretty badly on that, and there are many other things on which humans do badly. A lot of I think a lot of our bad behavior our exclusion of racial minorities and of gays and lesbians and transgender people comes from our sense of disgust in our own bodies. I don't know of any animal that lives out a sense of disgust at its own body; they kind of accept the fact that they or a body, and then they go from there. So I don't think that even what you think about moral abilities were are doing very well. Another thing that people point to...
0: But, here, but let me let me just suggest one thing. But, but intelligence, by which you mean something approximating human intelligence, something near the level yeah. of human intelligence.
1: I wouldn't use that word at all, if so I could avoid it, because I think it's too confusing.
0: Intelligence?
1: I'm, what different types of intelligence? I would say a whale has a different type of intelligence, and so on. hmm
0: it's just intuitively when one sees, for example, a dog suffer, you think somewhat differently because you think that they have a real awareness of what suffering means, whereas mm-hmm. it, it it it's it's possible that a that a finch or or a a, a reptile of some sort would not have that level of grief or pain or suffering or, or self-consciousness. Where does that, where does self-consciousness come in here? What you might call metacognition that you... first
1: thing to say is I think we think that way about dogs because we live with them and we see them every day and we really know what they feel. And the, the fact that we don't impute those same experiences to a mouse, it's not because the mouse has different abilities. In fact, mice are somewhat more sophisticated in many respects than dogs are. Really? Yeah, yeah. Can you? Because
0: can yeah. I actually found some of the most interesting parts of your book to be the details of these species. Oh,
1: okay. So, I mean, you know, just experiments with dealing with mazes and learning experiments, and so on. no. I, but uh, but self consciousness. Okay. What that means, I believe, I mean, of course, there are many debates about what we're even talking about, but what I mean by it when I use that word is the meta-level awareness that you are aware. Okay. Now, are we the only animals who have that? And what good is it to us? Now, for us, that meta-level awareness doesn't kick in all the time. You know, you do most of your life on well, what one might call autopilot, having a subjective sense of the landscape when you're driving the car, but it's only when you, you know, you're about to have an accident that you become aware. Oh, I just missed something over there, you know. So we use it sometimes, but not all the time. A lot of animals are the same. They, if you're going to have to deceive another creature, you've got to have meta-level awareness. You have to be able to think, oh, that creature will think that the nut is there, so I'm going to put it over here. Now we know that most rodents have that. They are able to conceal their food from other creatures, and therefore they've got to have them. Well, you talk about dogs. Of course, dogs are amazing deceivers, and you, anyone who lives with a dog will, will know that. There are some animals who don't seem to do that so much, but I can tell you that, that birds of many different kinds do have them.
0: If someone came and said, well, that's just instinct. How would you respond to that question or that challenge? Because what is instinct, actually? What do we mean by that? Well,
1: I don't know what the person means, but they'd have to spell it out. But I think, you know, it, all behaviors of all animals, including human animals, have an evolutionary basis. So instinct probably means it's, it's only that and it doesn't have to be further worked on by learning. Now, we know by now, that many, many animals, in fact, most mammals, engage in social learning. That's what the group does. That's why Tilicum, that orca in blackfish, was a bad, bad orca because he hadn't learned anything. He, he didn't grow up in the group. And it's like, a, as I say, the wild boy on, on the hills of Averod who didn't know how to be a human being. So we now know that certainly marine mammals of all sorts, Mammals of all sorts have social learning. They're not just automated machines, but they have to learn after birth what to do. Now, there are some about which there might be some doubt. I think with fish, there of course, we have thousands of species of fish and therefore we really don't know enough about any one species. But yeah, I think there would be some doubt about fish, partly because I think what's different about fish is they seem to live in the moment and therefore, they don't have these elaborate projects that allow the scientists to do complicated testing. But anyway, that's really what's it's interesting.
0: It's like the fish in Finding Nemo that just instantly forgets everything that just happened. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. That yeah. was Ellen
0: DeGeneres' character, I think, right? Kind of. But it know. is hard to think of that a being that, that lives literally moment to moment, anticipating death or being frightened in it before something happens. And that also brings us to the question of killing animals. Now, let me just present an intuitive or a rather commonplace view. Like people look at the world, look at the natural world, and see one, one round of killing after another. It is, it, it is, it is death to everyone, essentially. It, it is, there are, there are uh, carnivores eat, eat meat and kill other animals, and humans were part of that process as well. Obviously, we weren't entirely animal killers. Why, then, is not killing other animals for your own benefit something that nature seems to endorse?
1: Well, I don't care what nature thinks. I don't think there is any capital in nature. I I want to know what we should think. And I think, you know, we're living, we're sharing this world with lots of other different species. Right now, we dominate all the areas of land, all the areas of sea. I mean, if people think there's any wild sea, they better think again because the oil companies are out there polluting the sea with noise so that the whales are getting heightened stress responses. And in fact, after 9-11, when global shipping stopped and oil drilling stopped for a short time, we're able to show that stress responses in whales went way down. Okay, so we dominate the seas, we dominate the skies, so we better think how to do it well. I mean, whether you are religious or non-religious, and by the way, I love Matthew Stelly's book, Dominion, which says, you know, you could be a Christian and you might well think that God did give us dominion. But if you think that, you better think what dominion is in that Hebrew word, rada, means caring stewardship. So anyway, we have to ask that question. Now, anyway, I think the problem is that we're influencing such a decisive in- effect on all of the creatures who live out there, that we are dead influencers. Well, so we better think how we can use our influence in a way that's more beneficent. So what, I mean, so what more? You know?
0: No, uh, I mean, when you refer to, for example, what we understand about fish's brains or monkeys brains or whatever, we are to some extent using nature as our guide in understanding how things should be or naturally are. We have some concept of that. And when we look at the natural world and see it as a, as a, a sort of cavalcade of, 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 of fucking and killing and eating, yeah. essentially, I mean, everybody's watching David Attenborough series will know that, it's very hard to say that this animal, if we, if we are going to be part of the animal world, and that's something you insist upon, should somehow be the only one exempt from seeking to kill other animals as we have throughout our history, whereas other animals are entirely entitled to go around murdering whatever other animals they find. That okay, seems to be see. a little inco- incoherent.
1: The, the bad things that happen to animals Hi there. in the natural
0: This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full no extra charge, just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. andrewsullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. You also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dishcast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account andrewsullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe.